Today on Against the Grain. In its early days, the internet appeared to hold the promise of a new form of communication not driven by the profit motive. Yet what the internet became was not inevitable, according to my guest, scholar Jessa Lingle. Instead, she argues, a process took place, similar to the gentrification of our cities, in which those with wealth and power displaced myriad sites and communities of experimentation and dissent. She also discusses the still untapped potential of dark fiber optic cables right below our feet. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. In the 1990s, many saw the internet as a medium full of utopian promise, outside of the market. Several decades later, it's a place of surveillance and hyper-commercialism, dominated by Amazon, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Microsoft. How did this come to pass? Jessa Lingle seeks to answer that question in her book, The Gentrification of the Internet, How to Reclaim Our Digital Freedom, which is out from UC Press. Lingle is Associate Professor at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. Jessa, since you use gentrification as a lens to understand the transformation of the internet, can you define that term for us? Gentrification is a process that tends to unfold over time, and it's a process of people with a lot of resources coming in and reshaping an environment. And in that process of reshaping, they tend to push out or disenfranchise or um, in other ways disempower long-term residents. So. One way of thinking about this is uh, in urban space, you know, a big time developer comes in, buys out a whole city block, bulldozes old houses, puts up a new, you know, row of condominiums. And then what follows isn't just um, new houses, it's new businesses meant to support those houses. So. Um, Sharon Zukin, uh, an urban studies researcher, says gentrification is a process that makes power visible. And, and that's at the heart of what happens with gentrification is the people with most power and resources, um, th those la layers of privilege become very visible. Um, and the other thing that comes visible are, are the levels of non-privilege, the levels of exclusion from, from long-standing residents, long-standing communities. And you argue that gentrification as it pertains to the internet takes different forms with many aspects, but you categorize things under some broad categories of displacement, isolation, and commercialization. And I wonder if you could start with displacement. So when you think about the internet and what is the changes that have taken place within the internet, how does this notion of displacement, which I think we can picture with gentrification of people being forced out of areas, how does that notion help us understand how the internet has changed? That's a great question because I think there's a fundamental um, misunderstanding about online communities and what it means to stay there and what it means to leave. So um, tech companies, uh, big tech companies like Facebook and Instagram um, would have you believe that if you don't like the policies, you can just leave. If it's, you know, it's like a movie that you might not want to watch or a book that you don't want to read. If it's not for you, just don't pick it up. But we know uh, that there are consequences for leaving a platform that you've been on for a long time, but maybe have started to have some doubts about. And the reasons that it's hard to leave an online platform are the same reasons that it's hard to leave a community. It's where you've put in your time. It's where you have your friends and your family. So online displacement um, in terms of a gentrifying internet happens a couple of ways. One might be um, newer platforms uh, with a lot of resources and a lot of money um, just push out older platforms. So 
older platforms that have been online a long time that have a really rich community find it more and more difficult to compete for new users to keep their communities alive with these companies that just have so many more resources and so much more um, money and power and coding skills, honestly. So that's one way displacement happens is by pushing out older platforms. And the other way that it happens is just pushing out users who no longer feel welcome on a platform. So um, there's a platform called OnlyFans, for example, where celebrities, but also sex workers can sort of perform online and get um, you know money back in terms of tips or gifts. Um, from their fans. And this was working really well for a lot of sex workers, particularly during COVID. And then what happened is you had a couple of celebrities like Bella Thorne come in and establish totally new norms of how the platform um, should work. And it worked for them, but it pushed out a lot of smaller time operators who had been on the platform for a long time. And in protesting this, people called it gentrification. They said she's gentrified this platform. It used to be for a quirky group of folks on the outside, folks on the margins. And now you have to be like Bella Thorne in order to turn a profit here. And so you see very similar um, narratives of people getting pushed out because they already have um, people doing the pushing um, already have this power and privilege. And then that plays out in terms of who gets to keep working and um, thriving in that space. So then, if I understand you right, would it be fair to say that the displacement within the internet operates on a couple different levels? It can operate between platforms as one's displaced by another and within a platform, as in the example you just gave. Exactly. And it's important to remember those older platforms. So you might say to yourself, well, you know, the Internet is an industry just like anything else. You know, some companies are always going to make it big and others aren't. So why should we care if we don't have, you know, Friendster anymore? Why should we care if we don't have stumble upon? But what happens with these big tech companies is they sort of erase a messier history and they make it seem like their own success was inevitable. And that's really dangerous because we can't make it seem like the internet we have was inevitable. It's by learning about these older platforms, these platforms that serve people on the margins, that we remember that the internet we have didn't have to be this way, which means that it can also become something different. Yeah, so that's where things get a bit complicated because as you say certainly the history of capitalist entities is that there's competition between different ones and some rise others fall and that's just sort of par for the course within capitalist competition and i guess what i want to ask you is when we think about what goes on within the internet to what degree are the rules that govern it and the ways that it changes determined by the process of gentrification? And to what degree is uh, sort of capitalist imperatives more broadly at work here? Well, it's very difficult to separate gentrification from capitalism um, because I think really gentrification is a manifestation of capitalism. Um, so one thing that people often think of gentrification as like, oh, well, that's the individual actions of one or two people moving into a neighborhood. So we often think of it in terms of it's a couple of white folks, usually younger, artsy folks moving into a neighborhood. And if it weren't for those one or two people, then gentrification wouldn't happen. But gentrification isn't really about individual consumer choices. Gentrification is about a structure, a set of policies that make um, large-scale change happen. So in the city where I live, Philadelphia, we have all of these rules that really encourage gentrification in terms of tax breaks for remodeling houses, something called a councilman's prerogative, where city council people can basically decide where an empty lot goes if it goes to a developer versus a community organization. So it isn't really about individual choice. It's about these rules and these structures that are set up in a very capitalist logic to support businesses and developers over longstanding community members and, and neighbors. I think the other thing that's important to remember about tech companies and capitalism is, you know, I, I'm all about criticizing capitalism, but let's say for a moment that you wanted to embrace a capitalist logic. If you were like, yeah, I'm survival of the fittest, I'm a neoliberal, let's just have the most competitive company win. 
what you see with these big tech companies is they're actually very anti-capitalist. They're actually very anti-competition. That isn't, so they're not even playing the game they're claiming to play because they just buy up the competition. So Facebook just buys up WhatsApp and Instagram and all of these other tiny companies um, and then insists that they shouldn't be regulated. So even if you are the kind of person who thinks, hey, businesses are going to be businesses and they should then let the strongest one win, they're not even playing by their own rules that they tend to that they claim to embrace around competition and profit making um, and and serving consumers by being the best. They're serving consumers by gobbling up every other little company and not giving us any choices. And we'll return to that question of monopoly as we go. But I, I wanted to ask you about the question of isolation and how the structure of the internet atomizes and isolates us. Initially, the idea was that it would sort of bring us all together um, and in this very democratic way across our differences and we'd all talk to one another. But the reality seems to be something quite different. Yes. So in the early days of the internet, when you were entering a chat room, the classic question was ASL, age, sex, location. And that's how you would start off your chat. It is kind of funny to imagine doing that now because you go into an online encounter um, on a major platform like Facebook with other people already knowing that. It's on your profile. All that information is already there. So the idea that you would be curious about where someone lives or how old they are, um, that 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 layer of curiosity or, you know, a serendipitous encounter, that's already been stripped away. And what we have now are encounters that are informed by algorithms, encounters that are guided by the platform. So and the content that you see and the people's whose update you see, those aren't determined by you. Those are determined by a platform who's trying to push content to you so that you'll stay on the platform for as long as possible so they can push as many ads to you as possible. So it's worth recalling an earlier moment in the internet's hype, and it was never going to live up to this hype, but it's worth recalling there was a moment where the whole point, as you're saying, would be that we would encounter new people, new ideas, and sort of learn and become, you know, um, uh, more well-rounded or just more, we would have these diverse networks. And instead, you've seen a push away from that so that we're becoming more isolated with people who already basically agree with what we think. So Eli Pariser calls these filter bubbles. And you see it on all sorts of platforms. If you are clicking on YouTube, for videos of, you know, punk rock, you're only other going to see in the recommended videos more punk rock. They're not going to push new genres to you. That might be fine. You might be in a mood where you only want to watch punk rock. But where it gets to be a problem is if you watch one anti-vax video, then you suddenly go down this rabbit hole of isolated views where you're only seeing other anti-vax videos. And we know that that's really damaging and harmful, but it's also completely in opposition to what we imagined in the early days the internet would be, um, would be so powerful for us. And one thing that's really disturbing about that is offline, humans do not really do that great of a job um, diversifying ourselves. Um, we tend to um, live with people, live by people who look like us, who make the same amount of money that we do. Um, and, and we are seeing pushes towards even more segregation um, in our schools. Uh, the rates of segregation are actually going up rather than down in our schools, um, certainly in our churches, even in our workplaces. And so we've never needed sources of diversification more. And yet the internet is increasingly, the mainstream internet at least, is increasingly pushing us towards people who are also more like us rather than different. And can you explain for listeners who might be curious that with that kind of algorithmic sorting, what's the motivation for channeling us to more of the same and you know ever narrower and narrower mainstream tech companies make money really through one business model and that's by selling ads to us and so they want you to stay on a platform for as long as possible so that they can push more and more ads 
And what is important to keep in mind about that is they don't want you to take a break and pause and think about how do I reconcile these two different views or, you know, maybe I want to go read more about that on another platform. They want you to continue down a rabbit hole. That is the most profitable model for them is to have you more and more and more engaged in this one line of thought rather than taking a break or, um, you know, interrupting your um, flow with a particular set of ideas. And so it really comes down to a business model that has become very dominant on the mainstream web. Other business models are possible and have you know had some success online, but with the biggest platforms, YouTube, um, Facebook, Instagram, the goal is to keep you in in one little tunnel um, because just that's how humans are. Uh, an uninterrupted tunnel so that they can continue to push more ads to you. And the other thing that's important to keep in mind is these companies want to know who each of us are online and they want to get to know us as much as possible so that they can push the most relevant ads to us. And it's not because they particularly care that I have the most efficient route to a book or a magazine that I'm interested in. It's because it is more profitable for them to market the user data to companies who want to buy ads. So a company is going to pay more if they can market to me as a 35 to 40 year old woman who lives on the East Coast and likes vegetarian food than if they're just going to push a bunch of blanket ads. So the business models we have really encourage this kind of algorithmic sorting because it's the most profitable way to sell ads. Jessa Lingle is my guest. The program is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. We're talking about her book, The Gentrification of the Internet, How to Reclaim Our Digital Freedom. So you were just talking about this relentless push toward commercialization and gathering information on us to sell to us more effectively. Can you speak, though, more broadly about the commercialization of the Internet and why that's such a fundamental component in trying to understand how the internet works. There's always been people who were trying to make money through the internet, you know, from its earliest days. Um, the internet wasn't around long before people started using it for spam. Um, Finn Brunton has a wonderful book called uh, the Spam Shadow History of the Internet, it sort of details how people have been trying to make money. And, and it's not necessarily a problem that people want to use this very powerful tool of communication and education to, to sell things or to create products. Um, but the problem is when um, people assume that the only way the internet could be successful is through its commercial power. So the internet is such an amazing tool. Um, it's such an amazing um force for education, for communication. It doesn't have to only serve one master. It doesn't only have to have this one logic guiding us, but that is increasingly the narrative we have. So one thing I argue in the book is we need different narratives of what a successful tech company looks like. Right now we're very limited and we assume that a successful tech company is the one that makes the most money and that specifically makes the most money through, you know, an IPO and an initial public offering where, you know, these guys and it is usually guys work on this idea for a long time and then they their platform takes off, they're able to launch an IPO and then all the folks who were there early on get all this money. It's this Cinderella story. But we don't have to buy into that as the only narrative of a successful company. We could have other narratives of, wow, this tech company was so successful because it really expanded our source of human knowledge um, or because it did such a good job as far as creating a sustainable tech platform. And we do actually have examples of these kind of counter narratives. And for one, you know, a very powerful example is Wikipedia, which as a completely, you know, community-based, donation-based business model. Um, it's a nonprofit. And I think a lot of us feel like, oh, right, the internet is actually, we're better off and the internet is better off because we have a tool like Wikipedia where anyone can look up information and anyone contribute can contribute to making the source of knowledge better. 
So we have examples where an alternative idea of success and tech is possible, but we just have to be committed to reminding ourselves that these other narratives are out there and they're powerful and that we can hold on to that instead of a very narrow window of or ner very narrow definition of what a successful tech company looks like. I wonder if you could take us back and remind us of the origins of the internet and the web. And if you could define the two, which I think most of us think of as synonymous, the internet and the web, but actually are different things and were developed at different spots on the timeline of the story that you're telling here. Sure. I'm, I'm an internet studies person. That's that's my field and my expertise, but sometimes I use the terms interchangeably too, so I, I completely get it. That's a relief. <laughs> the internet is a the network of um, computers. It's the infrastructure that allows one device to talk to another. So um, I sometimes think of it as a network of libraries that's sort of sharing books with each other. So if you've ever requested your local library didn't have a book, you can request it from another library. And it's a, a network where people are sharing information with each other. And so in the early days, the internet... Um, was really just about devices talking to each other over over long distances. And the web, you can think of, if you go back to that library metaphor, is really much more like the books on the shelf. So before the web, the internet was really about computers talking to each other for the first time. And so as exciting as it was to have a computer in the early days, it was even more exciting when computers could talk to each other. And then when the web came along, suddenly it was possible um, to have all this online content. So you weren't just having a computer talk to each other and sort of exchanging what were called packets, exchanging little pieces of information or messages or data back and forth. Suddenly you were able to read entire pieces of content and, and that's, that's the World Wide Web. And so the web actually came along about 20 years after the internet. So um, there was that whole chunk of time where um, being online meant something very different. Um, but now the web um, is really how most of us experience the internet. Uh, bearing in mind that there is a danger of idealizing the past, when the web was set up, what was the general attitude toward commercialism? So I agree, it's important not to romanticize the past, and I, I don't want to fall into the trap of being nostalgic about the early internet or the early web. There were, there's always been problems of harassment online. There's always been problems of exclusion. So who can be online was always informed by who had the resources and the time to spend figuring out the early days of the web. But it is important to hold on to the moment of total quirkiness and total surprise of the early days of the web. So it's also hard, I think, now when you look at the internet, when you look at the web in the, you know, 1990s, the, it, the first thing you notice are probably the graphics and how basic they are. And they seem kind of silly now or cute. Um, I follow on Tumblr, you know, there's always being populated by like, oh my gosh, look at MTV's first website, you know, it is it is pretty cute. Um, but I think the thing that's most interesting for me is to remember people were making websites just because they had a love of poodles or they had a love of E.E. E. Cummings or they had a love for West Coast hip hop. People were just making websites as an act of love, as an act of curiosity, as an act of mischief. Um, and there wasn't really a way to monetize it. Obviously, there were folks who were selling stuff online from the very early days, and so those folks were certainly trying to make a profit. But a lot of the early web was just folks um, who had a real love of both being online and sharing some sort of niche topic. So the early days of the internet, we already had things like dating sites, Star Trek fanfic sites, um, Grateful Dead archives, and it was hard to commercialize them because there simply weren't enough people online and it wasn't clear what a business model would be. So instead, you had this sort of uh, menagerie or um, uh, Maria de Bello has also called it cabinet of curiosities, just of, of people spending time creating these sites that were solely meant to be fun, to build a sense of community, to entertain and to inform. So then how did the change come? You know, you write that the web has always allowed 
profit-making, but that the 2008 global financial crisis played a significant role in the shift. What was that? The internet was sort of grappling or, you know, pushing towards a certain set of norms. So we sort of had, um, and it's also important to acknowledge, like, around the world, there were, you know, people were going online and there were different ideas about what the internet was for, but Silicon Valley has had an outsized impact on what the web looks like beyond California, beyond the United States. And in Silicon Valley in the 1990s, um, again, there were always folks out there who were mostly profit-driven, but in a large part, the folks who were in Silicon Valley in the 90s and early 2000s um, were really driven by a sense of intellectual curiosity and a love of technology. Um, they might have what we sometimes call like techno-determinism or techno-solutionism, where they believed that the answer to any problem was probably best found through technology. But there was a, the real driving force was around, what can I build? What new technologies can we create? In 2008, the recession, um, you know, caused a lot of problems for a lot of people. And uh, one thing that happened was that um, people who had gone into the finance in order to make money suddenly felt like that wasn't as stable or as lucrative as it had been. So they turned their attention to um, technology. And so suddenly there was this massive infusion of talent um, and education and labor that had been going into the finance industry that was then pushed to tech. And people like Craig Newmark um, at Craigslist and people like Ellen Powell, um, who was at one point the CEO of Reddit, have talked about this, where after 2008, you see this shift where you're no longer as interested in building new technology for the sake of curiosity or for the sake of education, you're really about building a profit. So how can these platforms um, be stabilized in order to turn a profit? And so you see a real shift in the culture of Silicon Valley around why we're building these technologies and what purpose they're meant to serve. You mentioned earlier that the tech companies defy the sort of pure ideology of capitalism of unhindered competition between different capitalist entities, which in theory would lead to a multiplicity of, of different businesses and entities, but that the reality has been quite different, uh, a tendency toward monopoly. What would you say has been behind that tendency and would you see it as different as other sectors of the U.S. economy? Uh, we are certainly in a moment in the United States where um, mega corporations are becoming more um, common. And that I am not an antitrust expert, um, but in my understanding, um, antitrust regulation has changed in, say, the last uh, 20 or 30 years um, in terms of the understanding of what constitutes an antitrust violation and has made it a lot easier for companies to get bigger and bigger and to integrate vertically and to squeeze out their competition. And um, so there's, again, it, it's not, I'm, I'm always aware that it's, sometimes it's not so much about an individual company saying, well, this is how we're going to do it. It's more about the structural factors or the legal structures that allow or encourage something to happen. Um, I do think we are in a moment in the U.S. where we look to the tech industry as that's where you go if you're really smart or if you're really ambitious. Um, and certainly it wasn't always that way. Certainly at other moments in U.S. history, the idea is that you would go into other industries. Um, but at the moment, um, and it's turning out to be a long moment, um, the, the, where you go if you're ambitious and super smart is, is into big tech. I certainly see that with my students at the University of Pennsylvania. And so uh, there is a larger shift or a larger trend towards um, mega corporations and monopolies. I think it's been embraced in tech um, in part because of this infusion of expertise and know-how from uh, the financial sector. And, but I think it's also um, an awareness that in technology, 
there is a cost to leaving any platform. So there's a, a, a once a user is invested time and um, attention into a particular platform, they're less likely to leave. So the companies are aware that they have to keep a, plat a person on a platform for as long as possible. And so they just keep adding things to their platform to keep people there. Um, rather than embrace some competition to say, well, we're just going to design the best version of this platform and invite competition to spur ourselves on, um, which would be a very neoliberal capitalist vision of how companies are supposed to be. And we're seeing a total shift away from that to we're just going to control as much of the Internet as, as possible. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Today I'm speaking with the author of The Gentrification of the Internet, How to Reclaim Our Digital Freedom. That is published by UC Press, and its author, Jessa Lingle, is associate professor at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania. So when we think about the internet, we often tend to think of it as sort of immaterial, but of course it's based on a very material infrastructure. Can you remind us of what that infrastructure is made up of? Sure. Um, so the internet relies on, you know, fiber and cables, just like phone lines, just like television lines. Um, you hear things like the cloud or you hear things like remote learning and you kind of fall into the trap of thinking there's no physical there's nothing physical there that everything's just happening out in the ether but actually the internet is only possible because people dig you know, holes uh, for cable, uh, people string up cables up in the air, you know, so th those are absolutely essential to being able to go online and, and, and interact um, on social media platforms. And one thing that I talk about in the book is about ISPs or internet service providers. And those are the companies that own and operate those fiber and that cable um, in order to provide internet connection um, to your phone, to your house, um, to your place of work, to your school. And one thing I think that's uh, really crucial about ISPs is that they are increasingly owned by a smaller and smaller number of companies. So in the early days of the 1990s, you know, there was a point where the United States had thousands of ISPs and a lot of them were really small time operators, you know, sometimes it would just be folks, you know, a computer geek in your neighborhood who was running an ISP out of her house um, and enabling her neighbors to get hooked up for a small fee. Um, and at that moment, you know, most internet consumers had a lot of choices about what kind of ISP they wanted, how much they wanted to pay, what the privacy guarantees were. And over time, a lot of those smaller players have gotten pushed out. And now a huge chunk of folks in the United States only have one ISP to choose from. And that's really bad from a consumer standpoint, um, because it just means you can't choose. Uh, there's And there's also no reason for the company to keep prices low to attract new consumers, because you don't have a choice. Um, you simply um, have, if you want to be online, you have to go with ISP that's serving you in your neighborhood. So it's important to remember ISPs, to remember that the internet is um, a series of tubes, so to speak, because it is a crucial part of how much it actually costs um, to keep you online and also what rights you have as a consumer. I wanted to ask you about surveillance and what places within this network is information about us gathered. Tech companies actually know more about us than we arguably know about ourselves. They are constantly gathering information on how much time we spend online, who we interact with online, for how long, the kind of messages we've sent. Um, most folks at this point are familiar with if they spend time online um, searching for something, maybe you want to buy a new pair of sneakers and you search for it on Google and then before you know it, um, that exact pair of sneakers shows up on your Facebook feed or it shows up um, in the sidebar when you're writing an email um, in, in, in Gmail. And so there's that kind of surveillance where um, tech companies are monitoring what you do online and then pushing it to advertisers through a 
a function called data brokers. And, and the data brokers basically sell your information to advertisers so that they can then push the most targeted ads to you. So there's that kind of surveillance. And, but there's also the kind of surveillance that comes from your ISPs. And so your internet service provider is actually allowed to gather data on what websites you go to and then to hand that data over to third parties. That was the rule that passed in the FCC under the Trump administration. So, and even if you are, you know, online, you might have installed, you know, um, different plugins into your browser to try and push back on data brokers and to, you know, not cache cookies, things like that. Your ISP can still track exactly where you go, the different websites that you visit. Um, and so you, unless you're using an, a VPN, or a virtual private network, then you're still not, um, you still don't have any privacy in terms of what you're, where you're going online. And I think that's really important because it's hard to think of another communication or information tool that does that. You know, it's not like um, when you are reading books in your house, you know, some giant tech company knows exactly what you're reading, exactly how much of that book you read, exactly what you highlighted or what you wanted to say to a friend. You know, phone companies don't, unless there's a subpoena, monitor your conversations with your friends. I mean, we've really set up a world where tech companies on our internet activity have an incredible amount of leeway to surveil us and turn that surveillance into a profit. Before we turn to what might be done. I wanted to ask you about another dimension of this picture of the internet and gentrification that you write about, which is how uh, tech companies contribute directly to gentrification. That is rather than uh, gentrification as a metaphor online, but gentrification as it takes place in cities and other locales. I'm really glad you asked about this, especially in the context of the Bay Area. So I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, I grew up in the East Bay. Um, and I have watched over the last you know, couple of decades as our big cities have sort of transformed. And that is directly related to the incredible wealth of the tech industry. So if you went to San Francisco in the 1990s, um, even as the tech industry was booming, you wouldn't have noticed a major change in the city because a lot of that wealth stayed in San Francisco. I mean, stayed in the South Bay. But if you go to San Francisco now um, and you're at all aware of how the city used to look, you would see a major transformation. And so tech companies setting up um, a headquarters in a particular city has an incredible set of consequences for the people who have lived there. So at that point, you know, exactly, gentrification is no longer a metaphor. The tech companies are directly infusing um, vastly unequal amounts of money. They're contributing to vastly unequal power relationships between old and new residents um, in cities like San Francisco's uh, Oakland, but also places like Vancouver, um, increasingly Texas, Austin. Um, where you see tech industry money is reshaping what cities look like, uh, who gets to live there, how much apartments cost, um, and what kind of businesses thrive there. We've also seen some really high profile, you know, incident in San Francisco. So there was an incident where a bunch of Dropbox employees had set up an app to be able to play, I think it was basketball in a San Francisco court. And they got into an altercation with some kids um, who had been playing basketball there their entire lives. And they were like, what app are you talking about? We just play here. And the Dropbox employees who were wearing Dropbox t-shirts um, were like, well, we want to play here and we signed up on this app. So you see this sense of entitlement and privilege um, through the incredible wealth and power that these companies have and that their employees embrace. And then they have certain expectations of who gets to be in a city and why. One of the ways that the internet has changed our lives is obviously by producing an enormous volume of content in a few years, dwarfing decades of cultural output. And while it's not a focus of your book, I'd be really curious to know what you think about the question of how any period will be remembered. You know, what of all this material, whether it's say print or video or audio, will be archived and what will just sink under the tsunami of stuff? 
Well, a lot of my work, a lot of my research and scholarship has been a commitment to how alternative platforms or countercultural platforms have served communities who are on the margins, communities who don't see themselves as part of the mainstream. One thing I worry about in terms of how this period will be remembered is that we're only going to remember the biggest companies and we're only going to remember their narratives of what the internet should look like and why um, why it serves who it serves. So I, I worry about the narratives of technology um, that are going to become normalized and popularized through the companies we have right now. Um, I, I also worry that um, we don't have that many tools to really hold on to the platforms and interactions that we have. So um, there are a lot of fan fiction communities, for example, where their stories and their writing has been archived on a particular platform that then decides, hey, we're not going to hold on to this anymore. And then suddenly those texts that have bound together an entire community are just like, erased and gone and it that's because it's living in the hands of a, a, a corporation that can very easily decide well this isn't making us any money or we just don't care about this anymore so in that question about memory and archives um is very much on the minds of people who have to figure out are, are we going to build our own site just so that we can control where these things live, where these documents that matter to us live? And if so, how are we going to compete with these larger platforms um, that are so sophisticated and have all these resources, um, but that can turn on a dime and simply erase all of your content? I mean, there's nothing to say that Facebook can't right now erase everything before, you know, 2016 if they wanted to um and your rights as someone who might have spent a lot of time contributing to the platform are very very limited um so the question of what will be remembered um is important because it's just another way that these tech companies have a lot of power and a lot of um cultural responsibility that they are not necessarily well equipped to handle jessa lingo is my guest she's the author of the book which is out from uc press titled The Gentrification of the Internet, How to Reclaim Our Digital Freedom. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Well, let's turn to the possibilities that may exist. The road's not taken because one of the central arguments you make in the book is that we should not think of the internet, the, the form that the internet has taken, as some inevitability, that it was the result of political choices and other choices that were made, and that other forms, other ways are still possible. I wanted to ask you about what other forms might be possible, but I wonder if you could tell us about dark fiber networks, something I think a lot of us are not familiar with, and what potential they may hold. So this is an issue that my friend and collaborator, uh, Jermaine Halegua at the University of Kansas um, brought to my attention and we have written a little bit about it and I know she's continuing to work on it. Um, basically what happened is in the 1990s, a bunch of tech companies um, realized, wow, the internet is a really big deal. We need to build a lot of fiber and a lot of cable and we need to do it right now. So they laid down a bunch of fiber. Um, and it turned out to not be needed in part because technology improved and they were able to just glom onto existing fiber and then it also got outclassed by even better fiber. And so what happens is that there was basically this infrastructure that was overbuilt. And in a lot of cases, this fiber is underneath our feet right now and it's lying there and it's usable and it has just never been turned on. And why that matters is there are huge chunks of people who are still unable to get online, either because it costs too much. Um, a lot of times this is in rural areas, but other times it's in the suburbs or in cities um, where it's just not profitable for these large telecommunication companies to turn um, to extend their fiber networks. But there's this totally usable cable um, that's there um, and that could be used 
if only um, someone were willing to do it. And it's important to say this is not the kind of internet connection where it would be particularly pleasant to watch Netflix or to stream YouTube videos, but it's exactly the kind of fiber cable that would allow you to answer email and do stuff like sign up for you know a COVID vaccine. So in that sense, it's really important infrastructure. And so one thing that I argue in the book is that we can use city governments could really lean into dark fiber and say that cable exists it's never been turned on what if it were like eminent domain for good where they were like we are going to take this cable and we're going to operate it on a local level and we're going to make it so that our citizens um can use this can use this internet access and so it's a wonderful example of like the cable is already there it just needs to be reimagined in terms of who it could be for That's fascinating. So what forms of resistance are taking place already to the different processes that you've been describing, the hyper-commercialization of the internet, the isolation and atomization that it reinforces, and uh, these other aspects which you see as being like a form of gentrification? Often it can seem like trying to resist it is, if not futile, very difficult because, as you say, it isn't enough just to say, well, if you don't like what exists, just walk away from it because for a lot of people in their personal lives or even their professional lives, they are kind of tethered to these platforms. Yes. So I was very inspired by the work of anti-urban gentrification activists, and they have fought battles um, in different cities across the U.S. and elsewhere to sort of demand more accountability and to demand more autonomy um, in the neighborhoods where they live. So there are things that people can do to push back, and those can take different forms. So for one thing, we can diversify our networks. So I call this being your own algorithm. And that means taking deliberate steps to push back on the kind of algorithmic sorting that Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube would push towards you. So for example, at a certain point a couple of years ago, I decided I was just going to make more of an effort to follow black women comedians in my social media feeds. I just decided there's all these black feminist black feminist comedians out there. I'm going to start following them. And immediately my social media world just looked very different. And suddenly I was getting content that I hadn't known about before. The images that were coming across my feed were so much more diverse. It was a very small step that I had to deliberately take that then, you know, opened up a whole new um, set of content. And the wonderful thing is once you take that small step, then the diversification you don't have to think about as much. So suddenly you realize for one thing, oh, wow, the content I was getting before was really just reflecting of who I am as like a cis white woman. And now suddenly I'm getting all this different content. So you can take small steps that both increase your literacy of how these platforms work. And that also just, you know, expose you to different ideas, tapping into the earlier versions of the of the Internet. There's another key thing that we can do, which is forcing ourselves to learn the policies of these platforms. And so I liken this to going to city zoning board meetings. So I live in a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood in Philadelphia. I started going to city zoning meetings and it answered some of the basic questions I had. You know, in my neighborhood, people put up these giant houses right next to these tiny houses. And I just wanted to know who's doing that? Who thinks that that's a good idea? Well, you go to your local zoning meetings and you actually see the developer, the real estate agent, the architect, the lawyers, who say, this is what we want our city to look back like. And you can actually talk to them. You can actually push back. Um, you can actually vote and say, I don't approve this kind of building violation in my neighborhood. I think the counterpart to that is really learning the rules of these platforms. Platforms are invested in making us feel like we can't push back, that we can't speak truth to power. But we do actually have examples where people learned the rules of a platform and then they got together and said, we are going to change how this works. So my favorite example of this is in 2014, um, folks might remember, on Facebook, a bunch of drag queens had their profiles shut down um, for violating the quote-unquote real name policy, where at the time, Facebook demanded that the name on your driver's license was the name that you had to have on your social media profile. And drag queens said that's 
nonsense. I demand a different name. I should have that name. That's the name that I've worked towards. I'm promoting myself the way Facebook wants me to. I have this audience. So they got together with other folks who felt the same way about quote unquote real names, you know, indigenous people, survivors of sexual assault and other forms of abuse. Um, they got together, they built a coalition, they demanded Facebook change their policies, and Facebook did. They apologized and they changed their rules. And now a little bit of that platform is a little more equitable for other people. Um, so there are times where if enough people learn the rules, get together, build a coalition and demand change, then at least that part of these major tech companies becomes better, becomes more inclusive. So there are these small steps that people can take um, to diversify their networks, to learn the politics of platforms. And the last thing I'll say is I, I, I do activist work. I, I know I kind of zone out sometimes when someone says, call your congressperson, call your senator. But you can actually demand that local lawmakers um, make changes. And so as a result of learning about uh, going to zoning meetings and going to community meetings, I learned which lawmakers in my city and which um, what my congressperson was doing in order to support, you know, um, more equitable housing. And at the same time, I was like, oh, I need to learn where my congressperson stands on net neutrality. I need to learn where they stand on internet access and digital literacy. And so forcing myself to do that was really important in terms of learning which of my lawmakers I, you know, wanted to speak back to as a constituent and say, this isn't my vision of what um, the internet is for. This isn't my vision of what, um, you know, telecom policy should be. Um, and the great thing about doing that, the more local the level you do that on, the more likely you are to actually have a conversation with a staffer. So I understand when people are like, well, I don't, does it really change when you call your senator? Maybe, maybe not, but it definitely matters when you call your congressperson, and it definitely, definitely matters when you call your city council person. And that's where a lot of these decisions about infrastructure live in your city. So things like dark fiber, but also things like free internet access, regulations over um, ISPs, all those things can be shaped at least a little bit at the local level. And so if we're willing to put in that work, we can actually start to build a coalition that wins back some of our online freedoms. What do you make then, given that you say we should put pressure on people in positions of power to to take action uh, around the question of the internet. What do you make of the moves that have been afoot both in the US and the European Union to regulate the big tech companies? We definitely need regulation at the state and federal level. You know, a couple of years ago, Mark Zuckerberg was hauled before the Senate, and it was in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And I was honestly embarrassed to have these lawmakers who just didn't understand basic parts of how the Internet work. But I have to say, I've been much more encouraged by some of the antitrust, um, you know, hearings that have gone on this past summer and that are continuing I'm always in favor of more regulation of these big tech companies. I am optimistic that the FCC um, under the Biden administration will do more to regulate ISPs. Um, and I'm most excited about the possibilities of antitrust regulation. Jessa Lingle, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. Jessa Lingle is the author of The Gentrification of the Internet, How to Reclaim Our Digital Freedom. That is out from UC Press at againstthegrain.org. You can find a link to it. She's associate professor at the Annenberg School of Communication at the University of Pennsylvania and works with the Creative Resilience Collective and Police Free Pen. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time.